Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. Pretty, pretty a brief, uh, abrupt fade at the end of that song. Did I never notice that before? I wonder. I guess so. Um, this is Mike Fader. I wanted to thank uh, everybody who is, uh, who has responded. When I tell these stories about my life, uh, autobiographical stories, uh, sometimes I get some very um, deep personal responses, and I really appreciate those. They. Uh, they mean a lot to me. And speaking of which, um, <clears throat> if you're a new listener, you may not be aware that uh, there is a book of these autobiographical short stories, which I uh, published about five years ago, which is available on Amazon. Probably doesn't cost very much, but uh, <clears throat> there it is. It's called A Long Swim Upstream. A Long Swim Upstream. 
So if you like these stories, uh, you might want to get this book. And um, for those of you <clears throat> who have been listening for a long time, you're aware of this. But if you have never bought a copy, you might want to do that. And speaking of books, <clears throat> speaking of books, um, are you aware, did you know, um, that uh, in the last maybe, I'm guessing now, uh, 10 years, there has been uh, an increasing number of books about the Holocaust, about the Nazis' mass murder of the European Jews. Uh, <clears throat> This is, uh, I don't know how to explain this phenomenon. I don't know how to explain it. Uh, there is also, as you can easily see by reading or listening or uh, hearing the news, there is a uh, huge increase all over the world, a scary increase in anti-Semitism all over the world in this country and Russia and various places in Europe and other places too. Uh, these books about the Holocaust I have always tended to avoid them. Novels, I mean, you know, actual documentary books about them, histories of them. I, I read them when I was in my 20s and 30s. <clears throat> but after that, in my 40s, right up until now, I've always tended to avoid these books. And especially in the last 10 years or so, I've, uh, I've avoided them even more. And as I say, there are more of them. Um, graphic descriptions in these novels. These are historical novels of... Uh, Jews uh, trapped in Europe, uh, scenes of the Holocaust, things like that. And I tend to avoid them because they fill me with a terrible rage, and it's an impotent rage. It's something that already happened, and there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, as far as the anti-Semitism in this country and in the world today, what can I do about it? <clears throat> I can talk about it on the radio. This is my one outlet to have any influence on the world, small part of the world anyhow. Um, and that's about it. Or I can write about it on my website. So if you want to get in touch with me, by the way, on this website, it's uh, faderfiles, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com, faderfiles.com. So I avoid these books. And recently, though, uh, I, I'm reading part two of this huge, long historical novel which sometimes just gives up the, uh, just sheds the idea of being um, a novel at all and is just sort of uh, a written history of various aspects of World War II. This is by Herman Wouk, who wrote The Kane Mutiny. And uh, this book is called, um, it's a two-part book, and altogether it's maybe uh, 2,500 pages. He's not the greatest writer in the world, but he's not a bad writer reader either. He, he can, he's good with characters, <clears throat> His sense of story is very good. When it comes to dialogue, he can be abysmal. Um, but Herman Wouk, W-O-U-K. And these two books, which I can sort of recommend, <clears throat> based on what I just said, uh, uh, one is called, the first one is called The Winds of War, which is a, a few years leading up to the war. And the second one, which I'm about two-thirds of the way through now, is called War and Remembrance. And I knew in advance, I wanted to finish this whole saga, and I am doing that. And I want to see it through to the end of the war and see it through to uh, <clears throat> what happens to these various characters that you get involved with. But um, one of the main themes, if not one of the two main themes, 
uh, of this second book is the Holocaust and what Jews, particularly some that you're identified with, because I don't know about identified, it depends on what, maybe whether you're Jewish or not, or maybe just whether you're a human being with feelings. I don't know. But two of the, two of the important characters in this book are caught, Jewish uh, people caught in the middle of this nightmare in Europe, and uh, you don't know whether or not they will perish. And he keeps it up as a suspense throughout half the book already, and I've only read two-thirds of the book. <clears throat> so, but I'm reading about it, and this guy, Wook, did obviously, must have read a thousand books and articles and kept abreast of everything that was happening. He's an expert on lots of aspects of World War II, the battles in the Pacific and uh, in Europe and in North Africa, expert on everything, on the politics, on the military situations, on what happened in Russia. He is also an expert on the Holocaust in great graphic detail, and it is really getting to me. I'm going to finish this book now, but I try not to read it too close to bedtime. Uh, the uh, difference between uh, reality and fantasy or uh, what is real and what is in my imagination has never been too strong to me, <laughs> for me. And um, uh, like a little kid, it's not a good idea for me to read scary things or things that make me enraged close to when I'm going to be closing my eyes and um, doing my version of dreaming. So, <clears throat> but here I am reading this. So I just try reading. I stop reading it early and then I have an audio book, which is uh, much less difficult than I listen to um, right before bed or actually when I'm falling asleep. Uh, let me have a little water, obviously. My throat is even worse than usual today. Okay. You don't mind, do you? You don't mind. <clears throat> so speaking of books, uh, here's an article about a book that came out in India recently. <clears throat> New Delhi. Uh, an Indian publisher came under fire this week for including Hitler in a children's book about world leaders who have, quote, devoted their lives for the betterment of their country and people, end quote. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> quote, dedicated to the betterment of countries and people, Adolf Hitler? This description would bring tears of joy to the Nazis and their racist neo-Nazi heirs. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, associate dean of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, an international Jewish human rights organization, said in a statement. Published by the Pegasus imprint of India's B. Jane Publishing Group, the book called Leaders, but listed on the publisher's website as Great Leaders, spotlights 11 leaders who will inspire you, according to a product description on the publisher's website. <clears throat> on the book's cover, a stony-faced Hitler is featured alongside Barack Obama, Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, and India's prime minister, of course, Narendra Modi. Also included on the cover is Myanmar's civilian leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, who has recently come under sharp criticism for refusing to acknowledge atrocities committed by the country's military against the Rohingya ethnic group. Earlier this week, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, is it Simon or Simon Wiesenthal Center, 
which is based in Los Angeles, called for the publishers to remove great leaders from circulation and its online store, where it is sold for about $2. Quote, Placing Hitler alongside truly great political and humanitarian leaders is an abomination that is made worse as it targets young people with little or no knowledge of world history and ethics, Rabbi Cooper said in his statement. Not just young people anymore, Rabbi. The whole sad human race, adults included. Little knowledge of world history, indeed. No knowledge. <clears throat> Anshu Junja a publishing manager at the imprint said by email that Hitler was featured because, like Barack Obama, Nelson Mandela, and Mahatma Gandhi, his leadership skills and speeches influenced masses. That's the criteria. <laughs> That's a good criteria. We are not talking about his way of conduct or his views or whether he was a good leader or a bad leader, but simply portraying how powerful he was as a leader, he said. True enough. There's a kind of moral idiocy there, of course. You know, This is the same thing as Trump, this stupid son of a bitch, the vicious stupid son of a bitch, calling up Putin to congratulate him on his election, his quote-unquote election in Russia, where he either locked up or murdered any opposition he had to run against him. This was a, a fake election by a dictator and a murderer. And... Um, Trump calls up to congratulate him. This is how ignorant and <clears throat> how stupid Trump is. However, it is also uh, John Brennan, the former head of the CIA, by the way, mentioned that it could be that Trump called him up to congratulate him because Trump is afraid of Putin and the Russians because they have things on him and they could easily be blackmailing him. So he has to uh, kiss their ass all the time as if that would ever make any difference. <clears throat> Okay. The publisher had not previously received any complaints about the book, the email said, including from the Simon Wiesenthal, Simon Wiesenthal Center. In parts of Asia, atrocities committed in Nazi Germany are poorly understood, and Hitler is sometimes glorified as a strong, effective leader. What is that all about? What is that all about? I guess that makes sense in some ways, because when you think about it, think, examine your own knowledge of history. How much do you know about um, Southeast Asian, East Asian, Asian history? You might know a little bit about Middle Eastern history. How much do you know about Middle Eastern, African history? How, do you know, how much do you know about uh, great tribes, um, uh, dynasties, empires, um, mass murder, um, any of the flowering of various cultures that take place outside of Europe or the United States, or for that matter, in South America. I mean, people are generally centered on the history of their own country and or the history of their own quote-unquote race. And we, a lot of people in the United States, although that's changing, of course, radically now, a lot of people in the United States originally came from Europe. Most people in the United States originally came from Europe. And um, that's what we know about. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> that's, what, that's what our connection is. So it makes sense, I suppose, that um, the, what goes on or what went on in Europe or what goes on in Europe is poorly understood uh, in India. But that Hitler is glorified as a strong, effective leader, that goes over the line into something else. That's a kind of leakage 
and of the great vat of anti-Semitism, which is always bubbling in the world. And now in some places is starting to boil over again, scarily. And that's another reason why I don't read about, uh, I try not to read about the Holocaust, because I am legitimately, as any, as almost every Jew is these days, um, scared about what's going on in the world, about the anti-Semitism in this country, about neo-Nazis gaining uh, power, and some of them gaining um, great, vast political power all over Europe. This is uh, shades of uh, the 30s and World War II and the Nazis. And this is happening again. So it's all related. <clears throat> in 2004, reports surfaced of a high school textbook in the state of Gujarat, which was then led by Mr. Modi, who is now the prime minister of uh, India, that spoke glowingly of Nazism and fascism. See, now that's going over the line. Ignorance is one thing. When Trump says about people, uh, demonstrations in Charlottesville, that um, he's sure that there's some nice Nazis that's just ignorance. That's just ignorance. So maybe he's provoking people a little bit. But um, it's anti-Semitism that a book was published in India that spoke glowingly of Nazism and fascism, at least anti-Semitism. Um, <clears throat> according to the Times of India, and you know, <laughs> and think of what the think of the British added the British racist attitude towards Indians. I mean, the British had an empire in India for hundreds of years. And uh, one of the foundations of it was a rank, insane, vicious racism, which resulted in the rape and murder of tens of hundreds of millions of Indians, right? If you, and the theft of, the, of their property. Uh, and uh, the murder, starvation and murder of uh, millions and millions of Indians uh, under the guise of whatever else the British decided to call it. So they should know about fascism. They should know about imperialism. They should know about that kind of stuff. But apparently they don't. According to the Times of India, in a section called Ideology of Nazism, <clears throat> the textbook said Hitler had lent dignity and prestige to the German government and made untiring efforts to make Germany self-reliant. I suppose he did that. Dignity and prestige. And instilled a spirit of adventure in the common people. Yes, he certainly did. Only briefly does the book mention the extermination of millions of Jews and others by the end of World War II. Philip D'Souza, an Indian journalist, wrote in a 2012 editorial that when 25 mostly upper-middle-class students taught by his wife at a private school in Mumbai were asked to name the historical figure they most admired, nine of them pick Hitler. Nine of them picked Hitler. And what about the millions he murdered, asked my wife. This is the reporter speaking. Oh, yes, that was bad, said the kids. But you know what? Some of them were traitors. So they were fed and bought by textbooks and by people and, you know, their parents and by the Indian society. Um, Nazi insanity and Nazi lies. The statement from the Simon Wiesenthal Center said that great leaders that's the name of the book, had been sold this month at the uh, Crethe International Book Fair in Kochi, a city with long Jewish heritage, with a long Jewish heritage. The 48-page book was originally published in 2016, according to the publisher's website, and is still available for sale online um, this past week. It is unclear who wrote it. I bet. 
I bet. Oh, man. The world is getting scarier and um, scarier for some people more than others. Uh, <clears throat> shades of uh, ancient history and modern history. Now, here's another article which I'll briefly mention. <clears throat> this is from Vienna. Austria's far right wants the freedom to smoke. Three winters ago, during a highly public fight against lung cancer, Kurt Kuch, a smoker and a prominent journalist in Austria, threw his popularity behind a Don't Smoke campaign, hoping to spare others his fate. After his death at 42, the lobby succeeded and the Austrian government agreed to ban smoking in bars and restaurants starting this May. That was until the recent electoral success of the far-right Freedom Party, Freedom Party, whose leader, Heinz Christian Strake, or Strakey, himself an avid smoker, wants to give Austrians the chance, the choice, <clears throat> to continue to puff away with a coffee or a meal. As soon as his party entered a coalition government last year, Mr. Strakey, vice chancellor and sports minister, promised to step back from a total ban, saying he was acting in the spirit of entrepreneurial freedom. Mm. The decision has stunned almost everyone involved, doctors, restaurant and cafe owners, and smokers themselves. Even the health minister, who is from Mr. Strakey's own party, expressed concern. But it also fits neatly with the Freedom Party's anti-establishment quasi-libertarian tilt. Freedom of choice is the flip side of a far-right agenda that otherwise seems inclined to dictate to citizens, especially those from minorities, everything from whether they can wear head coverings to whom they should marry. The push to upend the smoking ban has stirred more than the usual consternation. <clears throat> Austria has one of the highest smoking rates among adults in the European Union and was one of only two member states where the number of adults who smoke regularly did not decrease from 2000 to 2015, uh, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Thomas Sekris, president of the Vienna Medical Association, appeared baffled during an interview in his office. Banning indoor smoking, he said, was not an attempt to single um, to single out smokers, but a move against smoking and harming the health of people. Yes, indeed, of course. People need to see an example to see what happens when you smoke, and that could happen to them too, he said. Thus, a smoking ban. Mr. Tsekis has been one of the high-profile backers of the Don't Smoke campaign, and uh, this is the uh, president of the Vienna Medical Association, and has promoted a petition asking the government to think again. It gathered more than 500,000 signatures in the month that followed, and this is in a country of only 8.8 .8 million people. Imagine that. Uh, we want to show the politicians responsible that the people are in favor of a ban on smoking, Mr. Zikaris said. Let's see. Zikaris said. The conflicting public currents around the smoking ban have intensified scrutiny of the Freedom Party which, <clears throat> you ready for this, was founded, by partly, founded partly by former Nazis after World War II and what it might do now that it has entered government. Yeah, former Nazis. I'm going to have some um, throat coat tea before I go on here. I mean, you know, what's, what's, what's happening in the world here? What is happening? Is it worse or do we just know more about it? Get some more information all the time.
see this helps. Not bad. Jeff have throw coat tea? Very good. Are we supposed to be? It doesn't matter. We talk about brands on here. Nothing matters anymore, right? And yeah, don't worry about it. I'm just drinking some tea. You want some? No, I can. I can come out there and give you some. <sighs> okay, that's better. <clears throat> Plowing on. Um, so it just seems like the general ignorance, and of course the resulting destructiveness and self-destructiveness of the human race. Uh, it appears to be growing. Like, it does really appear to be growing. It just seems to be getting worse. Everything seems to be... People are so irresponsible in the deepest sense of the word that it, it's depressing. It's as if humanity is very actively digging its own grave. That's the way it looks to me. It's the way it feels. And like I said before, it's supposed to... It's always been this way, and maybe it's been worse. Probably it's been worse in a lot of ways, the way the world is, people's treatment of other people. But it just seems more broader, wider, deeper now. I guess that's because the speed and the volume of information is so overwhelming. But <clears throat> also what makes, I think, what makes the vast ignorance and destructiveness worse now is that it comes after so many hard historical lessons. I mean, after all, this book in India is published after World War II and the Holocaust and the Nazis. Now, all these things that have happened in the past that that everybody is everybody is uh, clear, except in the most ignorant or illiterate countries where everybody is uh, it's available to read and to understand and, and it's taught in some places. After all of that, we should know better. <clears throat> but the human capacity, obviously, for ignorance and again, ultimately for self destruction, is boundless. There is no there is no end to it. There is no uh, top. There's no bottom. It's astounding. The planet is really digging its own grave. And I was thinking the other day about how <clears throat> I've been digging my own grave. And directly related to that, um, the idea or the concept or the reality of responsibility. Now, <clears throat> I don't actually have a shovel. I'm not literally digging a six-foot hole in Riverside Park, right? I'm not actually doing that. But sometimes the way I live my life, I think I might as well be. Uh, when I look at the way... I live uh, mentally, emotionally, and physically. And I think of the bad karma I've piled up in my lifetime, uh, even with what appears to be, and I think is uh, maybe true, is like more than a little awareness of what's going on in the world, or even what the idea of responsibility means. But in the end, when it comes to responsibility and behavior, as my old friend Lynn Samuels used to say, <clears throat> you are what you do each day. And on balance, I haven't piled up that many good days. As for general awareness, unlike certain Indian textbook writers and publishers, I know who Hitler was. And I know why it's crazy and destructive to do anything but denounce him in his works. And the Germans of that era, and the Nazis, and uh, Stalin, and uh, other evil people, and what the Japanese did in, um, in China, what the Americans did to Hiroshima, and on and on and on, and to the American Indians, and slavery. So I know about this. I'm aware of that. <clears throat> so I know about Hitler, right? I know about Hitler, even if the people in India don't know, even if educated people don't know. And as far as Austria goes, I wouldn't, even if I did smoke, which I don't, never subject other people to my fatal habits. To me, smoking, and this is possibly because my mother smoked at the dinner table, she chain-smoked Paul Malls, non-filtered, the worst kind of cigarettes of all. I'm sure before she died <clears throat> by killing herself, 
she may have been aware of the fact that she had um, cancer. It may be because she had been to a doctor and never said anything about what was going on. Anyhow, to me, smoking has always been symbolic of inconsiderate behavior. Though in this country now, most people are sheepish and even clandestine about their habit, I think. But even if smoking, even if it's hidden or kept very low-key, still families and societies have to pay for all the damage it's doing to people. I guess a lot of Austrians um, don't give a shit about themselves. Who else they kill? They've had practice in that kind of behavior before, speaking of Nazis. So smoke, let's all, let's all smoke. Everybody can smoke everywhere. We can all die. God or Demerung, right? <clears throat> As for my general awareness, my own awareness, I know that global warming is destroying the planet we all live on. I know it's wrong to let anybody have a gun, and it's wrong to deport immigrants or the children of immigrants. Uh, I know even if my country's political and business leaders don't know that it's wrong to cheat, I know it's wrong to cheat, to steal or hurt anybody else. Not that I've never done those things. But I, and I'm sure most of you, try not to. All these things and more, I know and I try. Um, and in whatever way I can, I to do something about it or at least say something about it. <clears throat> Personally, I mean, as for every day, day to day, I eat well enough. This is a review of my day-to-day life. I eat well enough. I don't eat too much fat or salt. This is awareness and responsibility, right? There are other people who, uh, even if I don't, uh, you know, take my own life that seriously, other people do. Other people need me, even if I don't uh, think I need myself. I mean, I eat, so I eat well enough. I don't eat too much fat or salt or preservatives or artificial coloring or junk in general, though I do eat too much sugar. Uh, I eat snacks of various sorts. If I can't afford it, I buy food that is not made from genetically modified organisms. So how's all that for being aware and responsible? That qualifies me, right? My diet is also fairly regular and healthy, I have to say, because my wife is generally in charge of the food intake in our house. And she, at least, has a healthy respect for her own well-being and and for mine. I don't drink uh, dairy or wheat or eat wheat, gluten, uh, for probably the last 15 years or so. And it's not necessarily because they might be uh, innately unhealthy in any way, because I don't really know. I've heard that they might be. It's just because I'm allergic to these things. I have serious, like, digestive troubles. I get headaches, various other problems. Uh, but I tell you, you know, I mean, between you and me, nobody else is listening, right? If I could eat wheat and dairy and tomatoes, which I can't eat for various reasons, the first couple of things I'd have that I would drop everything and go out and buy pizza. Pizza. That is something I even dream about sometimes. At least two large, steaming, hot slices of pizza, probably with sausages and mushrooms on top. You know, put the oregano on, eat it when it's just about to burn your mouth. The most delicious thing in the world. I'm not, you know, I haven't had every kind of food and I haven't been exposed always to the best of the best food in the world, but I've eaten a lot of different kinds of food. And I never ate anything I liked as much as pizza, which is now the last thing that I could ever eat without getting sick. Um, And also, I'm sure you're interested, the second thing I'd get is a large freshly baked bagel with a lot of lox and cream cheese. These are the two things I'd eat if I knew for sure. I would eat them if I knew for sure, instead of just suspecting, as I sometimes do, that I only had a couple of months to live. If somebody says, you only got a couple of months to live, this is what I would eat. Wait, wait. There's also, I I guess, um, I would also eat, um, if my health was no longer a worry, sausages, 
I would definitely eat sausages and ham. My mouth is watering just doing this. I'd have a ham and Swiss hero sandwich with mustard. Also, uh, probably calamari, squid, with hot spicy tomato sauce. And if I had any room left after all that, and I hadn't actually died, (laughs) but wouldn't make any difference if I was dying already, I would have a gigantic piece of chocolate cake. All these things, or chocolate ice cream. So where was I, Anyhow, Oh, yes, digging my own grave. So it's not my political awareness or eating habits that are the problem. I don't exercise enough. I don't, I really don't. I don't pay enough attention to my posture, and I'm sort of lax about other physical habits. But in the end, it's not my physical laxness, not my physical laxness that shows my less than ardent desire, I would say, put it that way, to participate in the general flow of life. What it really is, it's my common everyday passivity and relative indifference. The lack, I guess you could put it, of a central purpose in my life. Um, <clears throat> and all this goes back, uh, goes back a long way. I mean, I always had this streak in me, one foot in the other world. Um, you, some people, you could call it laziness if you're being judgmental, but an inability to uh, backbone, spine, you know, willpower, whatever it is. Um, and since, especially, I almost uh, <clears throat> cashed in my chips four years ago and have lived with some serious illnesses and conditions since then, and since I lost my main job on the air at that time and my main source of income, all of this in the last four years, I have definitely defaulted back to my lifelong position of uh, what I guess you would call it <clears throat> self-involved melancholy. And for somebody who's also another thing that goes along with this in the last uh, couple of years, uh, for somebody like me who seems to be able to speak so much at one time, this may seem odd to say, but I have also mostly ceased speaking and stopped talking to other people. Uh, when I do speak to people because I have to or because I know it would be hurtful if I didn't, I'm usually somewhat disconnected and I'm often inarticulate. Um, and worst of all, I'm even um, rude or irritable and I say things I regret. It's as if the effort of considering someone else's existence right now is too much trouble for me. So everybody gets on my nerves all the time. And uh, <clears throat> it's all an intrusion on me. Another way of putting all this, I guess it's, another way of, of summing this up and putting all the way of putting this is that I am right now, and I have been before in my life, irresponsible. I am acting irresponsibly. And that was uh, the idea that I was talking about earlier. There's the idea of awareness and responsibility. I don't respond uh, generally to the essential realities of existence and to the needs of other people around me. And that's a damn shame. That's a really a damn shame for me and everybody who knows me. Now, I, I have to say that I wasn't always that way. I mean, there have been islands of connection and responsibility in this giant ocean of self-centeredness. There have been identifiable islands like this. Um, <clears throat> as I've mentioned before on this program, the best times I've ever had in my otherwise trouble incarnation here on this sad planet, sad, beautiful planet. Somebody uh, wrote to me the other day, sent me some photographs, a regular listener, and said, why do you always describe everything or perceive everything as uh, ugly and nasty? It's true. It's true. I have been doing that um, in the last couple of years, more than ever. I didn't always do that. But um, anyhow, the best times I've ever had in this world is when I was taking care of my kids when they were little. And I've mentioned that before. Correspondingly, 
the most irresponsible thing I've ever done is to leave them when they were still young. Uh, what I missed out on was the daily love and support I could have given them and that I could only supply part-time from, from then on, uh, which I have done the best job I could do at. It's a great sentence, right? But it's never, it's never quite enough. I mean, that happened to me with my father, and for reasons um, too complex and psychological and too inward to go into, I did something similar to my own kids, only not as bad. Anyhow, responsibility. I was irresponsible. I was irresponsible. And also, I, I would say, among these, uh, among these various islands of responsibility in the ocean of self-centeredness were the other times in my life I was able to help somebody, either in a material way or in some spiritual way. <clears throat> now, I, I really enjoyed it. Justify, I felt justified in my existence, actually, when I was a welfare worker and a probation officer. This is way back in the 60s and 70s, so that's going back a ways now. I mean, I could also say the same for a lot of the radio shows I've done, and that's way up until the present time, where I uh, brought guests on often or talked about issues that, <clears throat> if it didn't really change the world, and I doubt if it did that much, or maybe not at all, at least it encouraged people. What I was saying, or the people I had on, or the subjects I was discussing, encouraged people who found the world a uh, <coughs> complicated, difficult, and despairing place. So that helped. And um, <clears throat> like I say, as a, a welfare worker and a probation officer, um, sometimes by legal and sometimes illegal means, I was able to give poor and troubled people some help in dealing with their lives. I mean, things I did to violate the rules and the laws were many and uh, I think people um, benefited, people on my caseload benefited a lot from it. Um, I came home from working those jobs and felt that I had actually fulfilled my role as a member of the human race. That's the long and short of it, that I fulfilled my role. That there was, uh, and there was a time, another time, this is back in my early 30s, when I came into a lot of money and was also able to be generous to people who needed things. <clears throat> For whatever reasons, nature or nurture, uh, it's obvious to me that what made me feel worthwhile and responsible, and I always thought this must be true for other people too, or most other people, uh, was anything I was able to do to help people, both in my personal life and at my job. Uh, for instance, um, I love hearing, uh, like I said before, I love hearing from listeners who have gotten something from one of these shows I do on, on PRN, or from people who are entertained or moved in some way by a photograph I posted somewhere or an essay I might write. So this helps. This is good. Um, <clears throat> what I've always had a, a difficult time understanding is uh, how just accumulating a great deal of money, you read about billionaires all the time, without using it, look at Trump and all his pals, without using it directly to help people, how does that justify human existence? To me, it doesn't. I mean, you can't just say, I'm not, I'm not Hitler, I'm not a Nazi, can't just exterminate people because they're doing something you don't like. But I never did understand how that was in the United States. Had, uh, having a lot of money has always been considered a great achievement, uh, something to look up to, something to admire, something uh, to reverence even, right? Um, but to me, I never could get it, right? Unless these people use their, all the money they made for great good. Uh, I used to, I, you know, I've read about the high-level corporate executives, bankers, hedge fund managers, billionaire investors, 
And the only time their lives make sense to me is when they are giving huge amounts of money to good causes or charities. So, and even then, they're making their money off the backs of tens of thousands of other people at the same time. Um, I Basically, I've never really known anybody, because so, I'm being judgmental. I've never known people personally in my family or personally <clears throat> who, who did this kind of stuff, who made money from money, made a lot of money just from money. Uh, and I really doubt if there's any professional stock market investors or hedge fund executives who, who listen to this show. <laughs> but if there are, you know, feel free to get in touch and uh, disabuse me of my prejudices. Uh, if you feel, you know, moved to do so, although I'm sure you don't. Actually, I did, I did have one regular listener back in the day who made a lot of money buying and selling government corporate bonds, millions of dollars worth every day. He also invested his money in various futures and commodities, uh, oil, wheat, things like that. He basically was gambling on future surges or shortages in things that were essential to people's lives. In some way, which I can't explain, I'm sure this is very wrong. Uh, but this is what he did. <clears throat> and he had a lot of money. And I had, at his invitation, I had lunch with him a couple of times. He was, and I still presume, uh, I presume that he is, a nice guy. You know, he's still uh, living, I hope. Intelligent, friendly. He, he read a lot of history and philosophy. We talked about that. We had that in common. We talked about the world. Talked about books. He wanted to see me and treat me to lunch because he enjoyed my show so much, which is good, Right. But more, he wanted to argue, and I brought him some books that I got, you know, pr uh, review copies. So it was really a, a trade-off. But what he really wanted to do, it became obvious after the first couple of times, was he wanted to argue the real value of his profession. Uh, he wanted to tell me how valuable what he, did, what he did in the world was. But I could never get it. And this guy was a religious Catholic. He took Christianity seriously, he said. He was a very good family man. He gave his wife and kids all they wanted and needed to live a good, decent, decent life. Uh, but in the end, I think he wanted so much to convince me of the value of his profession because at the bottom, he knew it really contradicted the teachings of Christ. So he was uh, struggling with that. Um, and what he did was basically, that's a net loss of, uh, of, uh, of uh, <clears throat> the common welfare of humanity, the kind of stuff that he did. But uh, I like that guy. He was a nice guy. <clears throat> So back to today's. Is there a theme today? I was going to say back to today's theme. Oh, yeah, awareness and responsibility. Uh, what's even more bittersweet to me, the way I act these days, uh, since I can't even have a decent conversation with people, is I was once a very good listener. I was. I, was, I used to be and can still sometimes be an extremely good listener. And um, you know that that is rare. I know that that's rare. One of the main things I've noticed through my life and in my life is that very few people actually listen to anyone else. And it's much worse now in, in this era of narcissistic technological addiction. I mean, it, much worse. Um, <clears throat> but real listening with the intellect and the heart combined with intelligence and compassion has always been a very rare thing. Uh, after all, I mean, why would millions of people, millions of people pay giant sums of money, or at least their health insurance company's money, to hire people to listen to them for 45 minutes at a shot. I mean, why? Listening. If you, if you take the trouble to really look at somebody, to tune in to who they are, if you pay attention to them, you remember the details of what they're saying. If you can do that, perhaps even more importantly, you listen to what they're really trying to say, even if they don't realize what it is themselves they're trying to say. You really pay that kind of attention. Um, and that's really a rare thing.
it's hard to do. It's hard to do. It's hard to overcome your own ego um, and let down your own defenses for a while to just let somebody really in and pay attention to them and help them. Very hard thing to do. Or maybe you don't find it so hard to do at all. Uh, I have uh, done that in my life, and I have not done that. Now I'm in a, in a phase right now where I'm not doing that very much. Uh, one of the platoons of uh, one of the platoons, one of the the brigade of shrinks that I've had in my life, since I guess I am never really convinced people are listening to me enough. She once said, uh, "It's better to be understood than to be loved. Better to be understood than to be loved." Interesting, right? Uh, she had some trouble herself making the distinction between intellectual understanding and love. And I think the people in her life probably uh, paid for it. But um, she she helped me a lot. She helped me a lot. And she was a, she was a good listener. And she understood me if she didn't love me so much. <clears throat> but I know what she, what she was trying to say was um, listening. She's talking about real listening and understanding and making it clear that someone's understood. I mean, think of the rare times you've talked to people who really understood you deeply. I mean, how often does that ever happen? And when it did... Um, wasn't that like a great relief? As if your ship had been on a, a huge storm, out on a giant storm at sea for days and days and days, and you despaired of your life, and you were going out of your mind, and then finally, in the end, you sailed into a calm, beautiful, welcoming harbor. There are these signs on various stores that were put up sometime in the last 10 years, 15 years up in my neighborhood, maybe other places, where it just says safe harbor. That always appeals to me, uh, feeling as I do constantly, like I'm in a <clears throat> storm-tossed ocean. But, in, but the times that somebody's really listened to you, when you needed somebody to listen to you, and they did, wasn't that, uh, wasn't that like getting a shot of morphine? Wasn't that the greatest thing? Um, and I'm thinking, can you really understand what, the, what my... Uh, <clears throat> former shrink said, can you really understand people if you don't also love them a little bit? Just, I mean, just to see other people, really see them. I mean, taking in, you take in like their posture and their gestures, the way their facial expressions change when they're talking. There's an invisible, powerful, like emanation that comes from people. Uh, yearning they have or enthusiasm or fear or ambivalence or rage. And people transmit these things every moment. It's a 24-hour-a-day, uh, seven-day-a-week, 52 weeks a year, constant, every-minute broadcast that people are sending out. When they're asleep, they're doing it. When they're awake, they're doing it. And uh, just showing that you understand that and maybe even understanding what they're trying to, to really communicate, that's showing love, I think. And um, I used to do this very well. I felt a real sympathy for for people, an empathy with other people. And I combined it with uh, what used to be <laughs> a good intellect and a good memory for details. Where all this has disappeared to, I don't know. And I'm sorry that it's not around. Probably it's hovering around somewhere. And if I do the right thing, if I do the right thing and I practice doing it, either by uh, supernatural grace or hard work. Maybe it'll come back. Anyhow, responsibility. As the Buddhists say, awareness combined with the right intention and the right action. That's responsibility to yourself and to other people and to existence itself. Um, <clears throat> now, I, I, you know, I mean, think. When in your life can you, set, can, can you be uh, said to be or can you be held to be responsible for what you say and do? 
Is there a time in your life uh, when, when, it, uh, when you could be held responsible for things? When you're a little kid, people don't hold you responsible. I look at my, um, I look at my 16-month-old granddaughter, Rosie, and she throws things around. She pulls all the clothes and the books that uh, my daughter you know, carefully put on the shelf. She just pulls them out, throws them over her head, laughs. Uh, she says no when she doesn't want to do something. <clears throat> in her preschool uh, daycare group, she just uh, occasionally would grab a toy from some other kid because she wants it. Think again of Trump. <laughs> How do we elect the president who's like a 16-month-old uh, child? So this, this little girl, this is what, this is, nobody's going to hold her responsible. You don't hold little babies responsible for things. And are we supposed to hold the president responsible for things? If we, if we decide that he's a baby, are we supposed to hold him responsible for things? I mean, think back in your life. Think back in your life. <clears throat> when is it that you felt a sense of responsibility, that you understood or it was pointed out to you that some choice you made, some words you said, a deed you did, may have seemed very minor at the time, uh, actually hurt somebody else. It's called socialization. This is how people get socialized. Obviously, our president was never, you know, socialized. And um, maybe there was a time in your life um, when you brought somebody great joy or maybe great pain. I don't know. Um, I used to work in the probation department. I'm thinking now about awareness and responsibility. There were guys there who had killed, pe- who had killed people, who had raped uh, people, who had beaten people up to where they were uh, disabled for the rest of their lives and done awful things. And they had no sense of responsibility. They have no awareness of the effects of their behavior. But other people do. Other people do. I mean, there's people in, who on the other extreme, there's people like my wife, who's a social worker, all her life, since she's a kid, every day, whether it's in her personal life or at her job, She's aware of other people's needs, and she helps them. So that's the other extreme. I think most of us are somewhere in between. We're somewhere in between. We do our best whenever we can. Um, and um, some of us have had the f- good fortune to have a couple of parents or a parent <clears throat> who was decent and brought them up to understand what was right and wrong, gave them a sense of uh, themselves and of responsibility. And uh, other people... Um, had almost no civilized upbringing at all. We were treated badly since we were little or given to understand that everybody is in it for themselves and if you don't do whatever you can to take care of yourself, you're a hopeless sap. <clears throat> the cops I worked with, the cops I worked with uh, in the probation department, they had that attitude. <clears throat> they had a very strong sense of what was right and wrong but um, they were also completely cynical and didn't believe and on the, on the other hand that there was any right and wrong in the world. And they themselves were the ones responsible to provide right and wrong, whether other people uh, shared in their opinion of what was right and wrong or not. I mean, the cops were arresting people for transgressing on what was right and wrong. And at the same time, they were acting in a way, very often planting evidence or lying or beating people up, that was wrong too. Um, some people talk about it, not just parents, but other people talk about, um, about uh, you know, a mentor. You often hear people talk about a mentor. If it's not a parent, a mentor, or even even in this day of predatory people, a coach, a sports coach, or a, a debate coach, or a, a teacher, a teacher who especially, I mean, a lot of people have had a teacher. I have had teachers who, ex- who were extremely impressive and influenced me, and I learned when I was a kid, because you're more malleable and able to learn then, you know, uh, the idea of right and wrong, what was good and bad. Um, 
But uh, I did not grow up that way. My father, who had a sense of right and wrong and what to say or not to say most of the time, was gone. And my mother was so impulsive and acted so much on instinct and doing what she thought was good or bad for her that she never taught anybody. There was no way I could learn from her, who was my main caregiver and my main symbol of an adult, what was right. I didn't learn right and wrong from her. So I've been faking it ever since. Uh, there's an internal knowledge that I have what's right and wrong, and uh, other people have pointed that out to me, and still people need to point that out to me from time to time, more than other adults. I need to hear that. Anyhow, sometimes when it comes to this stuff, I think my karma is in a kind of an endless conflict I have between uh, understanding what's right and wrong and how and how to express it. It's a conflict between self-preservation and giving whatever I can to other people. And sometimes I've been in uh, way into the helping mode in my life, and other times I'm only interested in what people can do for me. Anyhow, this, in this latter mode, helping other people, I will say once again, as I have said often, <clears throat> that this is one of the few opportunities doing this show um, to help other people. And I want to thank everybody who's been listening to me and have told me over the decades that I've been doing radio that something I said made them think or laugh or just reflect on something they hadn't realized before. And so if you do think about something I've said or it moved you in some way, I always do want to hear it. Uh, this radio show to me is a blessing. And I'm very well aware that each time I sit behind the microphone that I have the opportunity to do something good. <laughs> Thank you.